Thank you very much. I'm proud to be here. So let me begin with my favorite Catholic theologist, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, who ironically proposed to install a special corps of policemen, policemen who are also philosophers. This is a quote from Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday. Quote, the work of the philosophical policeman is at once bolder and more subtle than that of the ordinary detective. The ordinary detective goes to pothouses to arrest thieves. We go to artistic tea parties to detect pessimists. The ordinary detective discovers from a diary that a crime has been committed. We discover from a book of sonnets that a crime will be committed. We have to trace the origin of those dreadful thoughts that drive men on at last to intellectual fanaticism and intellectual crime. End of quote. Now, this idea may appear ridiculous, but would thinkers as different as Karl Popper, Theodore Adorno, or Emmanuel Levinas, would they also not subscribe to a slightly changed version of this idea, where actual political crime is called totalitarianism and the philosophical crime is condensed in the notion of totality? According to this line of thought, a straight road leads from the philosophical notion of totality to political totalitarianism. And the task of philosophical police is to discover from a book of Plato's dialogues or from a treatise on social contract by Rousseau that a political crime, gulag, whatever, will be committed. The ordinary political policeman goes to secret organizations to arrest potential terrorists. The philosophical policeman goes to philosophical symposia on dangerous ideas and so on to detect proponents of totality. The ordinary anti-terrorist policeman tries to detect those preparing to blow up buildings and bridges. The philosophical policeman tries to detect those about to deconstruct the religious and moral foundations of our society. This analysis, nonetheless, I think, demonstrates the limitation of Chesterton. What we critical philosophers try, try to do is not distract, sorry, destroy or whatever the ruling ideas, <laughs> but to demonstrate how these ideas, once they are allowed to realize themselves, negate themselves, or if you want, distract themselves. The, if there is an elementary philosophical gesture, it's a gesture from noticing the distortion of a notion, how I had a wonderful idea, but unfortunately in reality this idea was uh, wrongly applied and led to a catastrophe, to the, the, a distortion constitutive of this notion. The basic philosophical gesture is that you cannot simply stick to idea and claim it just went wrong in reality. There must have been a flaw, something wrong in the idea itself. This is 
at its most elementary what? Hegel calls the negation of negation. There is the external negation, for example, to take a well-known communist example precisely, the external negation, theft, a thief takes away your property, and then there is the immanent negation, where, to quote the well-known phrase by Proudhon, you discover how property itself already has a dimension of theft in it. This passage from the distortion of a notion to a distortion constitutive of this notion is the basic feature of the Hegelian notion of totality. This is why I think this notion is extremely useful today. Totality is not an ideal organic whole, but a critical notion. To locate a phenomenon in its totality does not mean to see the hidden harmony of the whole, but to include into a system all its distortions, antagonisms, inconsistencies, to see these distortions as integral parts of the system. For example, let's, what does it mean to see today's capitalism as a totality? If you want to talk about global capitalism, you shouldn't just say, okay, we have highly developed countries like United States, Scandinavia, and so on, and then countries which didn't yet catch up with this liberal democratic ideal. On the contrary, you have to include into capitalist totality, for example, a country like Congo, a country in disarray with thousands of drug children, child warriors, but a country which is precisely as such fully integrated into a global system. So what is our totality today? Insofar as totality is a whole inclusive of its imminent distortions, the first axiom of an analysis which locates a phenomenon into its totality should be a differential approach. When you look at a phenomenon, you should include into it not only what you see, what is present in it, but also its negative determinations. What do you mean by this? Recall the famous line of dialogue uh, between the Scotland Yard detective Gregory and Sherlock Holmes from Silver Blaze, the story, about the famous curious incident of the dog in the night time. Uh, uh, Gregory asked Sherlock Holmes, is there any other point to which you would wish to draw my attention? Sherlock Holmes answers, to the curious incident of the dog in the night time. But the dog did nothing in the night time. Sherlock Holmes' famous reply, that was the curious incident. How does this work in practice? There is a wonderful joke in Ernst Lubitsch's classical comedy, Ninochka. The hero visits a cafeteria and orders coffee without cream. The waiter replies, sorry, but we have run out of cream. We only have milk, so can I bring you coffee without milk? Uh, We have to ask here a simple question. Why do we add to coffee milk or cream? 
because there is obviously something missing in coffee alone, and we try to fill in this void. Uh, what this means, among other things, is that there is no full, full self-identical plain coffee. Every simple, just coffee is already a coffee without. The structure is here the same as that of Kinder Surprise. Empty eggshells made of chocolate and wrapped up in lively colored paper. After you unwrap the egg and crack the chocolate shell open, you find in it a small plastic toy. Is this toy not what Jacques Lacan called l'objet petit a, the object small a, the small object filling in the central void of our desire, the hidden <laughs> treasure. No wonder Kinder Surprise was, at least five years ago, prohibited to sell in the United States. I think because like, it renders too palpable the structure of a commodity. Uh, now, I want to mention another incident with coffee from popular cinema. This time from the English working class drama, or half drama, half comedy, Brushed Off with Ewan McGregor when he was still a working class hero before he became Jedi and so on. <laughs> the hero accompanies home a young pretty woman who, at the entrance to her flat, tells him, would you like to come in for a coffee? His answer, I would love to, but there is a problem. I don't drink coffee. Her answer, no problem, I don't have any. The immense erotic power of her reply resides in how, through a double negation, she pronounces an embarrassingly direct sexual invitation without ever mentioning sex. When she first invites the guy in for a coffee and then admits she has no coffee, she does not cancel her invitation. She just makes it clear that the first invitation for a coffee was a pretext indifferent in itself for the invitation to sex. Why lose time with such dialectical jokes? Because I claim they allow us to grasp at its purest how ideology functions in our allegedly post-ideological times. To detect so-called ideological distortions, one should note not only what is said, but the complex interplay between what is said and what is not said. Uh, what which unsaid is implied in what is said? Do we get coffee without cream or coffee without milk? There is a political equivalent of these lines. In a well-known joke from my youth from socialist Poland, a customer enters a store and asks, you probably don't have butter, or do you? The answer, sorry, but we are the store which doesn't have toilet paper. The one across the street is the one which doesn't have butter. <laughs> and what about a scene in today's Brazil, where in a carnival, people from all classes dance together on the street, momentarily obliterating their race and class differences. It is obviously not the same if a jobless worker delivers himself to free dance, forgetting his worries about how to take care of his family, or a rich farmer lets himself go and feels good about being one with the people, forgetting that perhaps he refused a loan to the poor worker. They are both the same on the street, but the worker is dancing without milk while the banker is dancing without cream. 
One can also imagine a Brastov dialogue between the United States and Europe, for example, in late 2002, when the invasion of Iraq was being prepared. The US, Rumsfeld was basically saying to Europe, would you care to join us in the attack on Iraq to find weapons of mass destruction? Europe replied, but we doubt if it's worth doing it. We have no facilities to search for the weapons of mass destruction. And Rumsfeld's sexual answer was, no problem, there are no weapons of mass destruction in, in Iraq. No. Now, it's not only jokes. Let me go a little bit more in detail how ideology functions here. Through my last example from cinema, one of the great classics of Hollywood left, John Carpenter's They Live from 1988. It's the story of John Nada, Spanish for nothing, a homeless worker in LA who enters a neglected, uh, an abandoned church, finds there a box with strange sunglasses, and when he puts these sunglasses on, he discovers something strange. These are literary critique of ideology sunglasses. Like you put them on and you see the real message, as it were. For example, uh, he walks along a big publicity board claiming uh, uh, something like go to Hawaii, have a holiday of your lifetime, enjoy life there. And then when he puts the glasses on, he sees the true message. Obey, marry and reproduce, don't think, and so on, whatever. Now, this may appear naive, but I think that this gap between what is said and what is implied is crucial about how ideology works. The first thing to note here is that the constellation that we get in Carpenter's film is the reversal of the classical ideological constellation. In the classical constellation, what you see directly without glasses, as it were, is precisely the direct order. And what you see between the lines, what you see if you put ideological glasses on, is the implicit pleasure, the obscene bribe, as it were, that ideology offers you in order to take hold of you. Uh, uh, for example, let's imagine American South, a classical example, in the 1920s. A uh, small city with Ku Klux Klan and so on. The official message, we are a Christian nation, go to church and so on. You put the glasses on and you see. So, if you are one of us then in the evening, we can go and kill some blacks, rape some black women or whatever, promising you, as it were, the implicit carnival. Uh, or even, sorry for the obscenity, I have great respect for Christianity, but nonetheless, imagine today a poster or whatever for Catholic priests. Serve God, dedicate your life to God, you put the glasses on and maybe you would have seen something like, and you can have all the small uh, boys you want, and so on, with pedophilia and so on. Now, this is an absolutely, I cannot emphasize how important this is, 
crucial mechanism, this dimension of the unsaid, which is why, if I may briefly refer to a classical example, which I developed much more in detail in my books, which is why I think a movie like The Sound of Music was such a mega success. Uh, I think the key scene of the film is, you remember, like half into the film when Julie Andrews, sister Maria, uh, goes to Mother Superior and tells her about her problem, which is she escaped the family from trap because she was not able to endure the situation of being passionately in love with uh, Baron von Trapp, and, but now she still feels desire for him, so she needs punishment, whatever. And you have to remember what the answer of Mother Superior is. I think it's the most obscene moment in Hollywood for me. You expect punishment. How dare you think about sex, uh, pray, uh, humiliate, torture? No. Mother Superior starts to sing a song called Climb Every Mountain. And the basic message of this song is literally something like, go back, screw the guy like crazy, something like that. And you know, uh, if you look at intelligent Catholic propaganda, this is their message. It's the official message is renounce, renounce, but then the message between the lines is pretend to renounce and you can get all the, all the dirty stuff you want and so on. So again, it's crucial to bear in mind these two levels. You find them everywhere. Now, it's easy to make fun of the uh, 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 more conservative, but what about our politically correct times? Another of my, sorry to already know it, classical examples, Starbucks, I noticed it, you have them here. Starbucks is for me ideology at its purest. Why? You enter it and you know. Usually they have posters saying something like, yes, our coffee is cheaper than with the others, but, and then comes, yeah, 1% goes to some stupid Guatemala children, 1% goes to rainforest, and so on and so on to save the... I found this an ingenious ideological operation. Why? Because, uh, you know, in the good old dirty capitalist consumerist times, which I absolutely prefer, you were a consumerist and you felt bad for that. So then you had to do something against it charity, solidarity with the poor, and so on. But Starbucks had an ingenious idea to include this price for the scene of consumerism into the price of the commodity itself. So it's a little bit more expensive, but you should not feel bad because, you know, the price for toward duty towards the poor, ecology, and so on, and so on, is included into it. This, I claim, is how in our charity, humanitarian times, ideology is more and more working. Just think about buying organic fruit. Uh, think about all those half-rotten apples who cost twice the normal, beautiful, genetically modified apples. Maybe they are better, but I don't think we, I mean, uh, better at the level of pure material quality. But I'm not so sure that we really believe in it or that we buy it for that reason. 
Isn't it more that you buy uh, organically grown apples because, to put it simply, it makes you feel good. My God, look, I'm doing something for Mother Earth. I'm part of a great movement to save Mother Earth and so on and so on, all that stuff. Uh, this is what you would have seen if you were to put the ideological critical uh, glasses on. It's the same with all these ads that you find them all around, for example, uh, where you have a, a, a picture of a child, distorted black child, and then a message like, for a price of a couple of cups of cappuccino, you can make a change. You can save this child's life or whatever. What would you have seen if you were to put these ideological critical glasses on? Something like, uh, I know you feel bad, you are ruining nature, we are exploiting the third world, but we allow you for the price of a couple of cups of cappuccino, not only the right to forget about all this, but even to feel better like you are doing something for it and so on and so on. This, I think, is our daily ideology. So, uh, I think ecology is extremely serious thing. I'm just saying we should be very careful about how ideology is part of our, like, everyday life, even in ecology. Of how, for example, this is why I don't trust all this stuff about, uh, about uh, recycling and so on and so on. It's, I claim that nobody really believes that recycling helps. My God, much more radical changes will have to be done. But it makes us feel good, you know. Oh, no, I separate. I didn't put, put the bottle of Coke in the same box as that uh, piece of newspaper. It makes me feel good. It's pure feel-good ideology. We are, ideology is one of the most important, in this sense, commodities today. So what's the result of this successful ideological operation? Well, we've seen the result recently in United Kingdom with these uh, riots. I think that the sociologist Sigmund Bauman was on the right track when he characterized the riots as acts of defective and disqualified uh, uh, consumerism. You know, it was fashionable to say that in 1990, in the Fukuyama style, uh, the era of ideology was over. Now we live in a post-ideological era. I say, yes, so what we have seen in London and other British cities in their suburbs was precisely a kind of post-ideological protest. Protest which is not articulated in the form of even religious fundamentalist project, but it's simple, pure protest which just imitates the ruling ideology. Like, we are bombarded by the social injunction of be a good consumerist, we cannot do it, we don't have money, so we will enact it uh, directly. Uh, this, I think, is where things are getting complicated today. I'm sorry, I don't have time to go more in detail, for example, into what is happening with anti-Semitism today. Here, I am 
My position is here paradoxical. I'm pro-Palestinian, I'm critical of the politics of the state of Israel, but I hope I can say this openly, precisely out of my great love for the Jewish people. What I mean precisely by this? Did you notice something terrifying, which is, I think, one of the most depressing signs of where we are, about that crazy guy who, crazy as he was, nonetheless, wrote texts which are crucial to understand the predicament of today's right, namely Anders Breivik, the crazy guy who did the shooting in Oslo. You know why he is so interesting? If you had the misfortune of reading his crazy manifesto, you may have noticed what he did. He is literally an anti-Semitic pro-Zionist. At the same time, he is anti-Semitic, openly. For example, he says, we in Norway are lucky, we don't have too many Jews. France also. England, United States, they have a problem. They have too many Jews, they will have to do something, and so on. At the same time, he is absolutely pro-Zionist, supporting stronger state of Israel as a defense against the Muslims. Now you will say, but this is a lunatic case. No, it's not. I claim that what he did is just the extreme form of something which should worry every Jew today. It happened some 20 years ago, I think, maybe I'm wrong, that the, a group of people who, how to put it, it's in their nature to be anti-Semitic, American Christian conservatives, started to support the state of Israel in its politics of, on the West Bank. Now, take Fox News. On the one hand, they are absolutely pro-Zionist in this sense. On the other hand, I mean, what? You know that their, their top commentator, Glenn Beck, they had to fire him because he was becoming more and more anti-Semitic, openly. So we have this paradox about which I don't have time to enter into it, which is, I think, shocking. This weird pact between Zionists, those Zionists, I mean, I'm not against Zionism as such, those Zionists who now are slowly appropriating West Bank and old-fashioned Euro-American anti-Semites. The idea is, if you allow us to do what we want there, we'll allow you your implicit anti-Semitism, whatever, in, in your countries. I mean, what unites them is precisely this perception that the danger is the immigrant other and so on and so on. Here also I think the left should change its position. You know it's very fashionable to be this uh, self-torturing guilty guy like when you have conservative defenders of Judeo-Christian European civilization to say, oh no we are guilty, imperialism, killing the natives, all horror stems for us. No, I claim that my God, yes, Europe, European civilization is in danger today. But its true enemies, for example, in Europe, are not poor Turkish or Arab immigrants. It's these defenders of Europe themselves, anti-immigrant races, who are the true danger to European identity. I think the left should reinvent 
progressive, radical, I wouldn't say Eurocentrism, but my God, Eurocentrism means democracy, egalitarian spirit, human rights, French Revolution, and so on and so on. The greatest thing, even around the globe, happened as an echo of French Revolution. Remember Haiti Revolution, the first black successful revolution. It was direct repetition of French Revolution and so on. And here, Europe is in danger, but from its defenders. For example, I am desperate now. In Europe, in post-communist countries of Eastern Europe, uh, you know how th things are tricky with gay homosexual parades, Pride Day and so on. If you organize one in uh, Eastern Europe, it will probably be prohibited or brutally attacked by Christian counter-demonstrators, like in the Croat city of Split, a weird thing happened a couple of months ago. There was a gay parade, but it looked like this. Some 800 gays protected by 2,000 policemen from the rage of 8,000 people around them attacking them. Uh, I read today in a newspaper that in, which I think it was even in Czech Republic or where, that gay parade was prohibited, claiming that it would arouse public opinion and so on and so on. While whatever you say, for example, about Turkey, at least there was a couple of months ago there a big gay parade, tens of thousands of people without any uh, counter demonstrations and so on and so on. So again, the, uh, the situation here is getting extremely complex, but we don't have time to go into it. Just let me go to the final part. What is effectively happening here? Where do we stand with global capitalism? I tend to agree with the idea proposed by my good friend, by my good friend American Marxist Frederick Jensen, that uh, one should reread the capital by Marx, focusing on the notion of unemployment. Unemployment is structurally inseparable from the dynamic of accumulation and expansion, which constitutes the very core of capitalism. And the idea is the following one, that today, more and more with this incessant technological uh, renewal, revolution, and so on, unemployment is becoming a key feature. Today's World marker is a space in which everyone has once been a productive laborer and labor has everywhere began to price itself out of the system. We have even whole nations, massive populations around the world who are, as it were, dropped out of history, who are excluded from the modernizing projects. We have so-called failed states rogue states, Congo, Somalia, victims of famine, ecological disasters, states caught in pseudo-archaic ethnic hatreds, objects of philanthropy and NGOs, or of the war on terror. The category of the unemployed should thus be expanded to encompass a wide span of population, from the temporary unemployed through no longer employable and permanently unemployed up to people living in slums and other types of ghettos. And finally, the whole areas 
populations of states excluded from global capitalist system. So this is, I think, one fact which is absolutely crucial to grasp today's global capitalism, that it is, with its expansion, producing more and more inherent exclusions. The whole areas left out there, as it were, out of history. And uh, don't be naive here. It's not that some primitive countries are left out. They are literally primitivized. Like my great example, just think about Afghanistan. If there is a country which appears a crazy fundamentalist country, it's Afghanistan. Wait a minute, unfortunately. I'm old enough to remember when I was young, before even the Soviet invasion and before the communists uh, took power there. Afghanistan was the, maybe the most tolerant Near East, predominantly Muslim country, with a progressive technocratic pro-Western king, with a very strong local communist party, absolutely not, and with a great tradition of uh, multi-religious tolerance. How did Afghanistan become fundamentalist? Well, first the communist party did a coup d'etat, then uh, there was the counter-movement, and so on and so on. So it's precisely through globalization that Afghanistan, tolerant country, became, how to put it, fundamentalized. The second thing we should bear in mind <coughs> is that uh, this uh, new structural unemployment should be conceived, I think, as a form of exploitation. Exploited are not only workers producing surplus value appropriated by the capital. Exploited are also those who are structurally prevented from getting employment. All those, uh, all those uh, excluded. Which is why I find this very interesting. Did you notice how the only original leftist idea of the last decades, economic idea, is the idea of basic citizen's income, which is basically a form of a rent. The idea is to save capitalism by enabling precisely those unemployed to get some basic rent and to survive, but also to still function as consumers. Why is this so interesting? Because I claim we should here think further than Marx, uh, in the sense that today we are somehow returning from profit to rent. Think about Bill Gates. How did he become, he no longer is, I know that Mexican guy is now the richest man in the world. I don't think he was ultra-exploiting his workers or what. I think it is rent. Something is going on today masked as technological innovation, computer clouds, and so on, which is that, you know, Marx at his best, but at the same time at his worst, thought in a very naive way that the moment the main source of wealth is no longer physical work, but knowledge, shared knowledge, social knowledge, productive knowledge, whatever Marx called this in English general intellect, that the moment this happens, capitalism can no longer function. It will, as it were, disintegrate. 
What Marx was not able to see is, is the idea of, uh, uh, of uh, this general intellect, the shared collective field of knowledge itself being privatized. And those who succeed in privatizing it get rent, not profit. It's a return to rent. That's what Bill Gates, Bill Gates did. Why is he so rich? Because in order for me to communicate with you, to be in touch, I have the very field shared by all of us is partially privatized by Bill Gates. It's not that he is earning a profit. We are all paying him a rent in order precisely in order to communicate with each other. Now, uh, to conclude, so uh, my uh, idea is here the following one. Why communism? I'm not crazy. I'm well aware. I've written quite a lot about it, about how the 20th century communist dream miserably failed, ending in an economic, ethico-political, ecological, and so on, catastrophe. So uh, why still use the name communism? My answer is the following one. It's uh, uh, explained much more in detail in my books. I claim that, uh, that the only true question today is Fukuyama or not. It's easy to make fun of Francis Fukuyama, that crazy guy who thought history is at its end, but uh, aren't we all, or most of us, silently Fukuyamaists? Even so-called radicals, they think we're more gay rights, better ecology, blah, blah, but nobody questions the basic liberal, democratic, capitalist framework. So the only true question for me is the problems we are confronting today, can they be solved within this frame or not? And I think, and this is even a sad pessimist thought, that in the long term, no. I claim that if you take the crucial problems we are confronting today, ecology, okay, you can do many things with market, I agree, if you tax uh, products which pollute the environment and so on, but when you have serious disturbances like uh, uh, Fukushima and so on, nuclear plants or whatever, uh, uh, the melting of the ice, uh, you cannot leave this to market. You need some kind of large, globally coordinated social activity. Intellectual property, I think it's clear that it's maybe one of the main sources of all the financial, financial market convulsions now and so on. I don't think capitalism will be able to, to in the long term, to control the, uh, or to even, uh, to even cope with the problem of intellectual property, which is why I think the greatest revenge of ex-communists is that, well, what? I read recently a commentary from a Singapore economist who said, 40 years ago, Deng Xiaoping thought only capitalism can save China. Now the West thinks only China can save capitalism. That is, that is to say, uh, did you notice how the most efficient capitalist country today are the countries where either Communist Party or another authoritarian movement is at its power. And that's what should, wor should worry us. Namely, that till now we had the idea, which was more or less even true, 
the idea of a kind of eternal marriage between capitalism and democracy. You may have 10, 20 years of dictatorship, but sooner or later, when capitalism becomes more productive, you have a demand for democracy. But now I think, unfortunately, maybe this time is over. Capitalism will, following its inner necessity, will have to not maybe directly get rid of democracy, but change it into an empty form. Then, biogenetics. My God, Fukuyama himself, once when I met him, admitted this to me recently, that the fact of biogenetics, the fact of the possibility to directly influence our, our psychic and so on features makes his idea of the end of history obsolete. Not to mention the new forms of apartheid and so on and so on. Let me be very clear here. I am not saying, oh, back to Lenin's communism and so on. That is over. The 20th century is over. I have no nostalgic dreams here. What I'm saying is maybe even something much more pessimistic. What I'm saying is that, uh, unfortunately, the problems are here. The problems which we face today are precisely at their most fundamental level, the problems of the commons, the commons of nature, which cannot be, I claim, the way we deal with nature, resolved through market mechanisms. It needs a kind of a globally coordinated activity beyond nation state, beyond the market. Intellectual property, the same. Biogenetics, the same. And especially, new forms of apartheid, new divisions, new walls. It's the irony that global capitalism where commodities circulate freely is characterized by new walls everywhere. I claim that more and more uh, capitalism will not be able to sustain this what Marxists dismissively called formal freedom. We are all at least in our ideological, political life uh, uh, acknowledged as free, uh, free individuals with human rights and so on and so on. More and more it's clear that some, something has to be excluded. Now you will say, okay, but where are here concrete possibilities? How to do it? Well, my answer here is that I'm not an old-style Marxist who claims, you know, there is a historical necessity, the train of history is on our side. No, it's not. It's, there is no guarantee that something will happen. Nonetheless, if you allow me just briefly to conclude with, nonetheless, when I hear the word impossible, it's not possible, I get skeptical. What do I mean by this? Did you notice how, in what a strange way, this opposition between what is possible and what is impossible functions in our societies? On the one hand, especially in the domain of uh, private pleasure, sexuality and technology, more and more things are becoming possible. They are telling us maybe we will become immortal, we will be able biogenetically through cloning to grow organs, to replace them, whatever, all these dreams, or even in sexuality, the tasteless example that I like, I recently meet in New York a surgeon whose specialty is to cut the penis into two. 
So if you have two penises, you can do it with two women, whatever. Uh, everything is possible here. So this is possible. You can be immortal. We will be able to travel to Mars soon and so on. But to, to raise like, taxes for 1% to get better health care, ah, that's impossible. <laughs> this is our reality. So there you have an absolute, uh, an absolute, an absolute impossibility. And uh, uh, things are here very strange. This is the triumph of ideology today. Recently, in mid-April 2011, media reported, and I checked it up with my Chinese friends, they told me it's true, that Chinese government has prohibited showing on TV, in theaters, but also in novels and comics, stories which deal with time travel and alternate history. The official argument is that such stories introduce frivolity into serious historical matters. Of course, we know what it is about. Even a fictional escape into alternate reality is considered too dangerous. But I think this is a good sign for the Chinese people. Like, those in power at least still see this as a danger. We in the West, we don't need such a prohibition. We automatically assume that it's not possible. So, communism today, for me, is not the name of a solution. It's the name of a problem. The problem of commons in all its dimensions. The commons of nature as the substance of our life, the problems of our biogenetic commons, the problems of cultural commons, intellectual property, and the problem of commons as the universal space of humanity from which whole groups of people are more and more excluded. Whatever the solution, and it will certainly not be the 20th century communism, it will have to solve this problem. Because, to conclude by quoting myself from the way you quoted me, I think that when people say you are a utopian, well, I'm saying, no, the only utopia today is the idea that with small changes here and there, things can go on the way they do. I think that we witness today an incredible amount of refusal, how to put it, uh, refusal to believe. For example, take just ecology. Uh, on the one hand, we refuse to take the ideological crisis seriously. Sorry, the uh, ecological crisis seriously. No, they are exaggerating and so on and so on. But what is so interesting is that at the same time, there is a lot of magical thinking going on in the way we deal with e ecology. Uh, what do I mean by magical thinking? You know that wonderful everyday example of magical thinking when you sit at home in front of a TV and you watch a sport competition, you support your team, and even if you are alone at home or with a couple of friends, you shout support as if in some magical way you can nonetheless influence the outcome. Well, I claim that a lot of this everyday low-level personal ecology uh, 
this uh, buying organic fruit, uh, 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 recycling, is pretty close to this sitting at home at south and shouting and so on. I mean, uh, uh, here comes the duty of us so-called public intellectuals today. I don't think, and those who think they can do are bluffing, I don't think we can offer solutions. I mean, when people ask me what to do with ecology, my God, what do I know? I don't have answers. What we can do is to see how, when we are confronting a problem, the very way we formulate a problem is part of the problem. It's a great art. As important as the art of finding answers to problems is the art of formulating problems in the right way. Here is ideology at its purest. Just to conclude my standard example, of course I am, as all of you, against sexism, racism, and so on. But I'm deeply suspicious of, and this is what we are usually doing today, of automatically translating these problems into problems of tolerance. Make a simple test. Google Martin Luther King, his text, and look for tolerance. It would have been ridiculous for Martin Luther King to say, I want from white people more tolerance, and so on. Or for a feminist to say, we want to be more tolerated women by men. It's humiliating, ridiculous. So why do we today automatically accept, automatically translate problems of racism, sexism, and so on into problems of tolerance? I claim it's one way of depoliticizing the situation. The problem which is basically economic, legal, and so on problem, all of a sudden becomes a cultural problem. Are we ready to tolerate others? And then you can even uh, uh, squeeze into it all the pseudo-psychoanalytic stuff, like why do I hate the other? Is it that I hate, by hating the other, I hate something deep in me? So I should... The solution is then to, to deeply analyze myself and so on, whatever. So, uh, or another, even more direct ideology. When in developed countries we talk about tolerance, do we not often mean the exact opposite, intolerance? What do I mean by this? When we mean tolerance, we mean we, there should not be harassment. Harassment is for me a very ambiguous term. Of course I'm opposed to it when we are dealing with rape or whatever, sexual harassment, but be careful when you hear the word harassment. Often it means something very precise which is much more problematic. The aversion towards the proximity of the other as an actual desiring being. Harassment means don't come too close to me, the other. Harassment means the fight against harassment often means stay at a proper distance. Your over-proximity bothers me. And it is here that racism functions today. A common liberal will always say, I like blacks, Chinese, but I don't like, and then comes that element of over-proximity. But I don't like the way they smell, I don't like their music, I don't like, uh, uh, again, the taste of their food, whatever. The problem is this. Uh, over, uh, the problem is this over proximity. So basically, quite often, tolerance means I don't 
tolerate your over proximity. Tolerance means don't come too close to me. And this is how in our narcissistic times, ideology functions at the level of everyday life. And just to conclude with a totally <laughs> crazy story, I claim that this is good news if you are an old romantic like me who still believes in love and passionate sex, not this kind of a healthy sex you know. I'm even suspicious of condoms, like I deeply sympathize with the black guy from South Africa who asked once, but why don't you use condoms? He says, I know it's wrong political, from political correctness, but I love the black guy's answer. He said, well, uh, making love with a condom is the same as taking shower with a raincoat on. No, there is, <laughs> no, but seriously, like, to, to, so that you will not think that I'm dreaming. Did you notice something strange in the latest Hollywood products? The last James Bond, Quantum of Solace. Did you notice that, although politically it's very progressive, basically James Bond uh, uh, saves the Morales regime in Bolivia against some bad uh, international company, but did you notice that it's the first James Bond film where at the end there is no sex between Bond and Bond girl? Let's go further and the lowest possible level. Dan Brown. Did you notice Da Vinci Code, no sex? And this is why I think it's the same logic as, uh, as, uh, as that, uh, 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 as, as the, how is it called, the TV series where, uh, with the two agents fighting the, sorry? Yes, X-Files, yes. Uh, I mean, my friend, the, uh, Darian Leader drew attention to a simple fact. Why do all those things happen out there? Aliens intruding all the time to mask up the fact that nothing happens here between the two of them. And it's exactly the same in, in Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. Poor Jesus Christ has to make love to cover up the fact that here there is no love between Robert Langdon and the grand-grand-granddaughter of Jesus Christ. Then, in the last novel, one of the worst novels of all time, Lost Symbol. There is absolutely no sex, no tension, even a step further. Did you notice how in, uh, how in, with angels and demons, it's even more mysterious. There is sex in the novel, at the end, between Robert Langdon and that Italian scientist. There is no sex in the film. Where are we coming? In the good old days, we said Hollywood added sex to make it more commercial. Now Hollywood is deleting sex. What is going on here? I think something very sad is going here. My friend, Alain Badiou, noticed a strange thing. She read a French ad for marital agencies where they said, it's the same, it works in French as in English, tomber l'amour, to fall in love. It said, we will enable you to be in love without the fall, without falling. The idea is a very sad one. The idea is, you know, falling in love means precisely fall. You expose yourself to an open danger. And now I think it's a very sad sign of our narcissistic predominant form of subjectivity that we want to have the result, be in love, but without risking the fall. Which is why something is really going on and agencies themselves are mentioning it. How we are in a way, 
potentially returning to so-called old primitive strategies of, uh, of, of arranged marriages. Only today it's not relatives, it's agencies who are doing Like the idea is who has time for slow flirting, who can risk opening yourself to the other. You tell all your desires, blah, 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 needs to an agency, they will do it for you and you will be just informed which come to fall in love and so on and so on. This is, this is our reality today and it's a, it's a very sad reality today. Which is why, again, absolutely to conclude with my, now really with my old joke, you know how more and more we live in a society where you get a thing without its substance. Coffee, yes, without caffeine. Sausage, yes, without fat. Chocolate, without calories. Beer, without alcohol. This is my problem with multiculturalism. I'm afraid that the other that multiculturalists are offering us, you know, this wonderful other who is holistic with organic harmony with nature, is the same decaffeinated other. Multiculturalism can be a form of racism. Maybe I should stop now. Thank you very much.